Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen Classes and Trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen Class Library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen Classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, it's Jason Wachab and welcome to the Mind Body Green podcast. Today we have the amazing Hill Harper here with us. What a treat. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jason. So there's a lot to cover with you. That's right. And we don't have a lot of time. We better get to it real quick. So I want to start early. So Brown and then Harvard Law and you're an actor. Walk me through how how you got there. Right. So what you're really saying is that I have a degree from Brown, which graduated magna cum laude from Brown, and then two graduate degrees from Harvard, from Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government. Yeah. Uh, master's from there and a, and a JD from Harvard Law. And I do a job that you don't even need a high school diploma to do. So that's basically <laughs> <coughs> the question you're getting at. It sounds very much like the same question my parents asked me <laughs> when I told them that I was going to, when I graduated from Harvard, with those two graduate degrees, take a waiting tables job at a diner from 11 at night to seven in the morning. Wow. Um, go home and sleep uh, until probably around noon or one and then try to do auditions and then go to an acting class at seven, 7.30 and then go to work at 11. And, and they said, what? And, and, and yeah, um, so that's a, what I did. Was there a moment? Did you always want to be an actor? No, no. Deep down, did you know or what happened? I didn't know. I had no idea. And, and that's what's so interesting about it. Um, when I was young, a child, my parents got divorced. I moved to the Bay Area with my mother. Yep. And a Clint Eastwood movie was shooting there. And I remember... Do you remember which one? I think it was Magnum Force. Oh, a good one. I think. Yeah. I think. And... Um, I was an extra. I remember doing that. So central casting, you know, whatever. Um, but I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be an actor then. Uh, and I remember doing a commercial when I was young. My, I eventually moved with my father. And I remember doing a commercial where it was a coffee shop. And if you brought in your report card with straight A's, they gave you a free Sunday. <laughs> And I remember holding up a spoon saying, it's great. <laughs> and uh, so I remember those two things. But at that point, I still wasn't thinking about that. You know, when I was young, I was like any other kid. I played football. I wanted to be a professional football player. So you did some acting as a kid. Yeah. But you didn't know this is what you wanted to do. No. So walk me through. So so, so what happened is, is that um, education was really something that's huge in my family. Yeah. And... Uh, my mother was one of the first African-American females to become an anesthesiologist yeah. in the country. And, you know, and, and, and I'm so proud of her because in a time when women were, th if they were thinking about medicine, whether they were African-American or, or, or Caucasian, they were probably thinking about being nurses during that time. Sure. They weren't even thinking about being doctors. My mother, watch this, is from a town of about 20,000 people in central South Carolina. Hmm. Seneca, South Carolina is the name of the town. A young black girl from Seneca, South Carolina goes on to go to Talladega College, historically black college in Alabama, yep. finishes there, goes on to go to Howard University, the most 
famous and iconic, you know, Morehouse, Spellman, and Howard are considered, I guess, the three most iconic or famous or well-known HBCUs, historically black college, university, graduates from their medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where she meets my father. So both my father, my father and my mother are both physicians. Mm -hmm. Um, My father's a psychiatrist, my mother an anesthesiologist. Education was the pathway for success and transformation for my family, certainly. And that was pushed upon me from the earliest time. So there was never a time that I can remember that becoming an educated human wasn't of central value Mm -hmm. to me. So books, information, discussion, critical thinking. My parents wanted me to go to school. They didn't they didn't tell me what they wanted me to study and how and what. Coming from a family of physicians, I thought about it, but I wasn't that interested mm-hmm. um, in medicine. But I did like Blair Underwood on Law and Order. So I was like, <laughs> hmm, maybe the law, that could be cool. Because, you know, he's kind of cool on Law and Order. And I'll, you, you ever know, tell him that? I'd have. <laughs> you know what's crazy? He came to speak at Harvard Law School when I was still a student. And after his talk, I was in one of the classrooms. I went up to him because his character in Law and Order went to Harvard Law. So I came up to him. I said, hey, I have this idea of a storyline. I play your younger brother and this, 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 this happens. And he's looking at me. And, you know, and now what's so funny. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> now that I'm an actor. I, I realize how crazy I must have come off because, you know, you realize now that you do it that actors have so little control over storylines. He's sure. looking at me like, you really think I control a storyline? You know, and, and it's like, I think people do. Like, people come up to me and be like, man, can I get the hookup? Put me on a show. I'm like, hey, I'm not that. I'm, actors don't control any of that stuff. We're trying to stay on the show, let right. alone, you know, it can't help it get anybody on the show. But um, all that's to say is... I go to college, and when I go to Brown, what happens is that I just I decided I'm, I'm going to play on the football team, uh, and I needed a uh, a class that met by a certain time because I had to be sure. able to get to football practice. Yep. And the beautiful thing about Brown University, and this is why I think that if I would have gone to any other school, I probably would not have become an actor, is because they have this thing called the open curriculum. Yep where you can basically, from your first semester freshman year, take any course in the course catalog. I mean, it's wide open. It's not like most schools where you have to do some kind of mandatory classes mm-hmm. um, that are prerequisites yep. and da 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 Obviously, there are prerequisites from the sense of if you want to take organic chemistry, you have to take this or whatever. You know. But I'm talking about any type of discipline. Um, and I needed a class, and I was flipping through the course catalog, I found there was a Shakespeare class, Voice for the Actor Shakespeare, Theater Arts 21, taught by Professor Barbara Tannenbaum, <laughs> uh, that met at the perfect time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I took that class, and it was so different from all the other classes I had. And I so different from any class I'd ever taken. I really loved it. And What happened to football? Football became very unimportant. You know, I, I kept playing, and I played uh, through my senior year. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. I didn't know you played football. Yeah, I played. What position? I was a receiver. Okay. Yeah. What did you run the 40 in? Not fast Not enough. Fa- <laughs> Not fast enough. But, you know, uh, I, I loved sports. I yep. still do. I love football. And, I, and um, what happened is that I kept taking more theater classes. Mm-hmm. Still not thinking, is this gonna be my career? But, but there was a turn during that time where, where the, the love started to take over. Yeah. And I knew that it was a part of me somehow, and this is something that resonated with me. And I started to think, well, how could I do this? But it also I st- kept thinking about law school. My roommate wanted to go to law school, and I was like, ooh, law school. So I was thinking, I knew I, school was, it was so safe to continue sure. becoming, you know, educating yourself. And that yep. was a safe space 
So I decided to go to law school and- Not just any law school. I, I went to Harvard Law School. <laughs> I almost went to Yale. Um, I was very blessed and fortunate. I got accepted. I only applied to three law schools and I got accepted. What was the third? Stanford. <laughs> so Stanford, Yale, and Harvard are the ones I applied to. But I knew I wanted to continue theater. And so I joined a repertory company in Boston and I went to Harvard Law School. But I decided to do a joint degree because I had won a, fellowship, a Sloan Fellowship, um, which is Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship for public policy. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in public service and very interested in government and public policy. Yeah. So I decided to do this joint degree. And what it did was it allowed and helped me pay for uh, my graduate school. You know, mm-hmm. not all of it, but it helped me a lot. And, um, and the rest I made up with, with, with student loans and, and continued to do rep, repertory company work in Boston. The point when about two years in, I decided my uncle, who was, I considered a dear mentor, was diagnosed with cancer at 47. Ooh. He was dying. And he, we had a lot of conversations but one of them on the phone was when he told me to always follow my heart mm-hmm. and never make decisions based on money. Mm. And at that point, I was really being pushed to make decisions based off money. Why? Why do, why do I say that? When you're graduating from Harvard Law School with a, with a master's on top, you start working if you decide to take a corporate law job as a second year attorney. And second year attorneys, even back then, were well in the hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. So at a corporate law firm in like say New York City, and I was sure. offered jobs at those. So there were a lot of people who were saying, well, Hill, the sensible thing is to take one of those jobs, pay off your student loans, and then go do what you wanna do. Yeah. And his lesson always resonated with me. There was also a thing, I was working at, um, at one of those corporate firms as a summer intern because that they, you made money during sure. that. So I needed to help keep my student loans down to, to make money during the summer. And I remember running off, sometimes I'd say I was going to the law library, but I was really going to an audition. And I, <laughs> I would take off the suit in like a Roy Rogers bathroom and then I'd be oh sweating. Gosh, I'd put on like whatever was for the audition, go to the audition, come back and change and go back to the, the law firm. And it was just stuff like that. But um, I remember a key broke in a file. One time when I talked to him, I, and I kept that broken key for a long time because it represented something to me. Hmm. Um, and I guess what it represented in certain ways was, that, you know, you don't always get an unlimited number of opportunities to open up closed doors or locked doors, you know. Um, and that doesn't mean that all hope is lost you know, if something's locked. But take it seriously when there's an opportunity, because mm-hmm. you know the key may break, and 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 you're gonna have to find a new door. Yep. Um, so I decided to not go that route, and that's how I ended up waiting tables. And so you're at Harvard. You meet a friend, pretty special friend, pretty important friend, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. You talk talk to me about that. Well, you know the the African American student population at a place like Harvard Law School is relatively small. This and was thirty years ago. Pretty tight knit. Twenty five years yeah, ago. Right? Yeah, a long time ago. And um, you know, we both like basketball, <laughs> so we met playing basketball. Played a lot of intramural basketball against each other played with each other different times, pick up games. He was good, he was good. He's, he's tall and he has long arms okay. and he's a lefty. Okay. So that all of those factors help. I don't know, quickness over height. Well, he's, he's, older, <laughs> he's older than me, number one. He spent about six or seven years doing community organizing in Chicago yep. before he went back to grad school. And I went straight out of Brown. So I was in my early 20s, he was almost 30. And what's funny is when you're in your early 20s and somebody's almost 30, they seem really old, you right. know? Like, wow, he's been out in the world, you know? Uh, and, you know, he had a sense of purpose and gravitas. Yep. And I, I looked up to him, not just because he's taller than me. You know, he's a really smart guy, very thoughtful, 
a, a, a really good guy who wanted to have positive impact on the world. Yep. No question about it. Um, but, you know, at Harvard Law School, everybody thinks they're going to be president. <laughs> you know, everybody's smart. Everybody's charismatic. That's a great quote. There's a lot of there's a lot of people, and so I think what nine or ten of the of the forty four have gone to Harvard, and I think six or seven of those were Harvard Law School. Right. So, so it's not not uncommon. Not un, it's 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 not completely out of the right. out of the box to think that you are going to be someone of some measure of significance at, at that university or, or at that law school. But, you know, at the same time, at the same token, he became president of Harvard Law Review, which is the highest right. student position amongst a, a large group of people that think they're pretty yeah. important and smart. And so, you know, there are people like me who weren't interested in something like the law review. Because it's a lot, it's a lot of work, and 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 it's also something that was not that for me fulfilling. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, because I was doing other things with my extracurricular time. Sure. You know, I was I was doing theater and I was acting in plays and going to New York and all these different things. The extracurricular time that those folks spend was almost like a full time job. Was yep. to do Harvard Law Review. My girlfriend uh, at the time was on Law Review with with him, and. Um, you know, it's a very senior, uh, high status, high visibility position in the law school. Yep. So there's no question that he was at the top of his game. And he was someone who, who uh, you know, would be reckoned with and be successful in whatever he wanted to do. I think that we're speaking about him specifically, something that's not discussed much about him is that he took a very non-traditional approach to the way he exited. And what do I mean by that? Most of us are taught, and perhaps wrongly, that the only reason to take a certain position is to set yourself up for the next position that avails itself because you took that position. Right. If you look at almost every president of Harvard Law Review mm -hmm. or anybody that runs a journal at any prestigious law school, the reason why they do all that work, they most of them will tell you is not for the work itself, it's before the opportunity that it affords them jumping off of that. What is that opportunity? It's to first clerk for an appellate court judge and then clerk for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Because clerking for the Supreme Court is such a prestigious clerkship that it sets you up for a dynamic legal career. You could be a professor anywhere. Mm -hmm. You could you know, become a judge. I would be willing to bet that 90% of Supreme Court justices were Supreme Court clerks. Right. Um, and easily 90% of appellate court justice, you know. So it sets yourself up for a legal career um, of the highest order. He chose not to do that. He didn't do it. And there were people that would say, particularly at the time, he's out of his mind. Why would you be president of Harvard Law Review if you don't take the, the spoils right. or the opportunity right. that that position allows you um, to have? It's a wasted opportunity. Um, instead, he came out and he wrote a book, and he started dating a fantastic woman too. But I'm assuming uh, that's Michelle. Yeah, yeah. That started during. But what's also so? Do you know Michelle back then as well? No. So this is interesting. Okay. Michelle graduated before either of us had gotten there. She wasn't a third year when we were first year. She was gone. Right. She graduated that year before. So when he and I got there in the fall, she had just graduated. Got it. So she went back to Chicago to work for a firm. He, just like me or anybody else, needed to work for a law firm as a summer intern to pay the bills, mm -hmm. right, for school. Sure. Help defray the cost. He got a job in her firm. And of course, the recent graduates 
look over the summer associates. So Michelle was his boss. Michelle, <laughs> basically, <laughs> still is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk to me about you know. You both go on your path, yeah. You know, and you both are serving very non-traditional, right? Very non-traditional two people, two graduates exactly. taking very non-traditional paths, right? So, what <clears throat> what what does that relationship look like today? And then, how like you, you both are going these non-traditional paths? Like, did you keep in touch? What was there? You know, you pick up the Harvard Law School alumni magazine, you're seeing what everyone. Hey, it's like Barack's over here. I'm doing this. Like, I see everyone else working at you know a law firm. Like, mm-hmm. how, how did you? You know, do you always no, keep I'm, in touch? Or? No, no, because he also graduated a year before me yep. because I stayed to do my finish my joint degree. Right. And I always joke with him is that I'm actually the one with the master's in government, not, <laughs> not him. So, but he, he goes back to Chicago yep. and just goes on his life, you know, and, and, and starts living that journey. I think the network of friends kind of keeps up with everybody and that's just the what you do and you also want to support each other so if you hear that someone's doing something and you know you help out the when he uh decided to run for a statewide office is it was when he really needed to rally the troops yeah that's when we started talking a lot more because there was a reason to. It was purpose-driven yeah. to help him become senator. Yeah. Um, and the at the same time, what was interesting is I was writing my first book. Yeah, Letters to a Young Brother. Letters to a Young Brother. And I wanted him to contribute. So mm-hmm. I was getting contributions from people who I had a great deal of respect for. So, you know, I was attempting to help him in whatever way I could with his Senate running. He was helping me with my book and by contributing. And yep. it ended up uh, being pretty cool because certainly we didn't know he was going to win. Uh, but that doesn't mean we weren't going to fight to make it, make it yep. win. And, 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 there was, and, and, and I think that there's a lesson to be seen from his journey because a lot of people think that it's, it's been some anointed journey. You got to remember that before he ran and ultimately won the Senate race, he was destroyed in a congressional race by Bobby Rush, almost three votes to one. And to me, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, sometimes rejection is God's protection. I love that. And because watch this, if he would have won that congressional race that he thought he wanted to win, and he worked really hard to win. Yeah. That he got that he lost. He right now would probably be a fourth or fifth term congressman that none of us have ever heard of. Right. Instead he's an outgoing president whose who, who's whose mark on this country and the world will live in legacy beyond eight years because he's going to be an amazing world ambassador for the next fifty years. Yep. We're going to come back to politics. It's something clearly that you're passionate about. Spirituality is something you touched on. Talk to me, you know, getting back to the timeline, your, your waiting tables, you're deciding you're going to give this a shot. And yeah. it seems like, <clears throat> like Barack, there wasn't an instant success where all of a sudden you're waiting tables and you get this big role and then voila, yeah. I've yeah. made it. I'm a big, big time actor. Yeah. Talk to me about that journey and the struggles and what role did faith play in that processing? It's very easy to very easy to give up. Yeah, it is. And go back, especially you, you have to some degree, I would say, the golden handcuffs where you've got this great fallback. I've got a law degree. I could go do this. So very easy for you to say, all right, I've had, I've had enough. I'm going to go take a job at a big law firm yeah. where a lot of other actors can't do that. Yeah. You had that very easy way out and all your law school buddies say, great, you've come back to your senses. But yeah. you didn't do that. No. So talk to me about that process. Well, I, th- I think that when you step into something that you truly love, you can't even think about a plan B. Right. You know, and that it, because if it is there, then ultimately you'll take it. You'll go, you'll go there. Because I never 
and I'm not saying I, I it wasn't purpose built mm-hmm. that I'm saying, I said, I'm not making a plan B. It's that it never occurred to me to even have that other plan B. Now, I was fortunate in that I think that there were challenging times that came up, but because of my education, I think it was easy for me to get that waitings table job, for instance. Yep. You know, because I walk in with two graduates from Harvard, my resume looks a little different than right. the other guy who wants that same job. Right. And they're looking at me Did like- Did you ever get like, why do you want this job? Who, yeah, what? yeah, exactly. What, what are you doing here? Right. And I'll tell you really honestly, some of the best people I met early in my career were those people I worked alongside of. Because none of the other waiters or waitresses were there because they were trying to be career waiters. They had goals and dreams that were much like mine. Right. There was a writer, there was a dancer, there was an artist. They, they, they had, there was an entrepreneur. I loved that job. I really did. I came to actually love it. Um, and the people that I worked with. All that's to say is I never really thought about it. I never really thought about what I would do if it didn't work out because my lifestyle was such that I could take care of myself off this waiting's table job. And I was lucky to have that job. And I didn't have a big lifestyle. I didn't have, I noticed that you referenced golden handcuffs. I noticed that the golden handcuffs really happen to people who are living outside of their true essence Mm -hmm. and making choices that they, there's always something and you, you wanna call it Everyone has a different name for what it is, but there's something inside all of us that is telling us continuously whether we're living our truth. I really believe it because I hear it all the time. Because so what does that sound like for you? It it it, it sounds like <laughs> fear. Yep. It sounds like guilt. It feels like uh, shame. All these things that I don't want. Right. And then I also know. That those things, I never feel those things if I'm in my moment, in my, tr- if I'm doing something, because I'm lost in it. And that's one thing I love about acting. If there, if, and maybe that's what I love about other things that I do, because they all have this, this, this thread that if it's, if it's really great or challenging role, you lose yourself in it. Sure. Some roles don't require it. And if you even, tr- if you put that much on it, then you're doing way too much. Yep. So, so, and, and I'm gonna be honest, most roles don't, you know, that I get, you know, maybe the roles, every role Meryl Streep gets, they do, <laughs> but I'm not Meryl Streep, right. to be clear. So I don't get those roles yet. Maybe someday, knock on wood, God will bless me with those opportunities. Or maybe, Jason, you'll write a script and he'll, you'll be like, Hill, I need you to play me. I started this company. You know. So. Um, yeah, that's right. And uh, the, so here's the deal. The times when I've gotten to play roles that require that, I think the love of being able to lose myself in those roles is so beautiful. Um, and... And that's why I never thought of anything else. I think the question people need to ask themselves is what, what you're saying, and I tend to agree, is if there is no plan B, that's what you need to do. Yeah. And if there is a plan B or plan C, maybe do you think twice about why you're doing what you're doing or right. why you're looking to start a business or pursue acting or so forth. And as soon as you, st- and even in, re- in relationship terms, same yep. thing. And, and as soon, but the, the, here's the deal. As soon as you start asking those questions, th- that fear voice pops, starts popping right. up. Happens with me all the time. Happens to me more, to be quite honest, in the relationship space than in, in, hmm. in my career space. For whatever reason, I'm able to commit quicker easier no plan b in career than in relationships right or historically right you know um and that is when you hear those and hear you hear those fear voices they come up but but they kind of they the actual activity itself dissipates it you don't have to do the 
mental, I'm going to steal myself yeah. and I'm going to walk through that door. If it's not pulling you through, then that's something to question. Right. So, so in this, I'm assuming there was lots of rejection in the early days. Oh, so much rejection. So how do you, how do you deal with rejection? You know Especially what? lots of it when you're, you, you know, probably not a lot of confidence or maybe yeah. you did have a lot of confidence and you're waiting tables. Like, how do you get through those moments? The beautiful thing, I can just speak about acting, is that the beautiful thing about acting is that if you get yourself into a class or around a group of other actors that are doing what you're doing, is that even though you get rejected professionally, there's a place to go to do what you still love. So you're getting fed somehow. Yeah. You gotta feed yourself with what you love. And if you stop feeding it, that's when it starts to feel like it's choking you, the rejection. The rejection still hurts, but then you go to acting class later that night and you get to play, yeah. you know, Othello, and people say, Man, you're great, you know, that then then that rejection sort of washes off. And I think that the same is true with with anything else. If you just live in if if it's just chasing it, and this is actually what I think has become harder with my career as it's gone on, because what you tend to do is you become more experienced is that you stop availing yourself to the same types of groups and things that you, that used to feed you when you were younger yeah. you stop going to classes yeah. because you'd be the the old ass actor in the the, the acting class you know, you know you've been doing this a long time you know and, and so you stop doing the things that, that can, can help feed and you start living in the business maybe too much. Right. And that's why I'd say with a lot of artists, the rejection is almost like a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of abuse. Sure. And how do, how do many artists deal with it? They deal with it through ego, inflation sometimes. Mm -hmm. They deal with it through substance abuse. They deal with it through all these different types of negative ways to, 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 to let it out. And then some people deal with it other ways. Or they act like they don't care anymore. Right. So what role does spirituality play in this journey? Throughout, throughout your journey as an actor, mm -hmm. specifically coming up all the way through today, I know it's a big part of who you are. Yeah, so it's, it's central, but it's always evolving for me. Um, so what did it look like in your, in your twenties to, in my twenties, it was more of a traditional, I go to church, sure. I pray and I call, you know, I, I do the sign of the cross and Jesus, yep. and God, and, and then to that toolkit, cause that never leaves. That's sure. fundamentally centrally who I am. And that's my ritual. I, I still pray every day. Yep. I still pray over my food. I still reference God and Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, that that's who I am and how I was raised. But I've added more to that because I start, you start to see religion being created by man mm -hmm. and start seeing spirituality as your own personal relationship with the universe and sure. higher power. So I feel like rather than I start adding those things in. So I started going on retreats mm -hmm. as I got a little older, more comfortable with learning. I'd go on retreats and, and, and they could be meditation retreats. They could be retreats about art. They could be, you know, I was doing all, all you know, heart chakra retreats, opening up a heart chakra, yoga retreats. Yep. So started doing more of that. And that was opening me up too. And then I think reading books. Mm -hmm. But then I started writing books right. that had, had, had a lot of what I learned in it. So, so all of those things started feeding. And then I started speaking much more. And so it's, all of that to me is part of this journey. So what inspired you to write Letters to a Young Brother? So my first book, Letters to a Young Brother, was, was, was inspired simply because I would get invited to speak at so many colleges, universities, high schools, middle schools, all the time. Um, I think in part because I was an entertainer who was on a successful show and, you know, at CSI New York's height, it sure. was one of the most, it was watched, watched shows well, in the one world. of the most watched shows in the right. world, exactly. So 
it, it was Sheldon Hawks. Dr. Sheldon Hawks. Very <laughs> yeah. And and I was very proud of that role. You know, I was the guy it's that great show. all the characters would have to come to my character for answers. He was smart yeah. and stereotype busting. All of that. And so I would do these talks and all these young guys would invariably I would always have Q and A's, none of them would ever ask questions publicly, but invariably they'd always kind of line up and kind of you know, saddle up to me and look around, make sure no one's looking. Hey, <laughs> hey, you know what? Hey, man, you said I could achieve anything I want in my life, but, you know, I don't have this and I don't have that, but I feel like I can and I have an intuition I want to do this. And, you know, can you help me be a mentor? And I just, you started to realize that a lot of these young men have all these ambitions and, and energy and brilliance, creativity, but they did not have the role models and the network to actually learn and build and go from that journey from young adulthood to manhood. Yep. Um, they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the toolkit, let alone the tools. They didn't have the instruction manual. Right. So my goal was to write an instruction manual because hmm. I'd been given a lot. When I, was, when I was growing up, I was given so many instruction manuals. Sure. I got great books that are motivational, but they're written in a language that these young guys, they wouldn't care, wouldn't be interesting right. to them. You know, and I, I, my challenge was, could I evolve that same book? Mm -hmm. So there were books I loved when I was young, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria sure. Rilke, yeah. German poet from, you yeah, know, 18, great yeah, great book. That book's not gonna resonate with right. a young guy today. Um, another great book, Dan Millman's book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Yeah. Love that book. That book may or may not resonate. But point being, could I write a book that could resonate to these young guys? And so I set out to do that. And that's, that was the only book I was gonna write. I was not setting out to be an author. <laughs> my father had already died from cancer. Uh, my uncle had died from cancer. My grandfather had died from cancer. So it was definitely some fear around around that, um, from that context. And I was in Atlanta doing a movie with Tyler Perry based off the Broadway show for Color Girls Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Wasn't Enough. And Carrie Washington was my wife in the film and was shooting. And I, um, I wake up and I can't swallow. I'm having trouble and I was pain swallowing, but I knew I wasn't sick. But I, when I went to the doctor's office to get the initial check, check out, you know, the nurses were there, oh, we'll take a picture of Hillary, blah, blah, blah. So I took all these pictures and they were all funny. We were laughing and we were joking. And then they did a fine needle biopsy, 18 sticks of a needle that's ultrasound guided. So to, to remove fluid from my neck and my thyroid. And then um, I came back a week later and I knew something was wrong just by the reaction of the staff. So we went in and the doctor said, yeah, I mean, there's, we have, you know, almost with a certain, based off, the fine needle biopsy is almost a certainty that you have, uh, you know, a, a serious form of cancer, uh, thyroid cancer, and we recommend, you know, surgery immediately. I was thinking, okay, you know what? I don't want to follow in my dad's footsteps. So w what do I need to do to, to do my best to have that not happen? And by then I, did, I was working on my fourth book which was gonna be a financial literacy right. book. Um, that's what it was gonna be. And I ended up writing a book called The Wealth Cure, worst title of a book in history. But what it was trying to do and speak to is the idea that health is the number one wealth factor right. in the world, bar none. That's, that's it, and, and this diagnosis proved that to me. It doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter what, if you don't have your health, you're not wealthy. So in this moment, do you think you know, everyone reacts to illness in different ways. Like, is there a why me? Is there, no. is there like, okay, right away, I'm going to beat this. I'm not going to be my father. Or is it a little bit of both? Like, it, was there, were there stages? The why me stuff doesn't come up. I never said why me when the blessings, so I can't say why me when the, when the right. non-blessings come. Right. You know, I've been so, so, so blessed and fortunate. So there was never a why me or, or, or a pity thing. The, there was there was fear around things that were out of my control. Right. You know, I couldn't control if the, those cancer cells had spread to other parts of my body. We right. didn't know, and I 
and you still don't really know. Right. As I'm talking to you right now, they could be multiplying right. in some place because they left my thyroid before we got to it. Right. I don't know. But I do know that I can do the things that are in my control. So what are those so, things? One, deal with the immediate situation to the best of your ability first. What did I do? The number one thing, he said, I recommend surgery as soon as possible. First thing I did was called my network of folks that I knew to find out who is the best thyroid surgeon that I can find. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed them, some on the phone and some, and I started doing my own research. I was in control of picking who was going to actually do yep. this procedure. So why not do what I could control? That's really what it came down to. I wasn't in control of whether the cells have already set right. up shop somewhere else. I wasn't in control of, of, of certain things, but I could control who did it, who did the procedure. Yep. I then could control what I put into my body before the procedure and after the procedure. So how'd that change? I heard about certain homeopathic things that you could do to reduce bleeding and inflammation during surgical procedure. Um, you know, just things like that. I started thinking about what are some of the contributing factors to cancer and uh, that, that people talk about and how could I begin to, to decrease those but still live a life that I still enjoyed. For instance, I love wine. Yep. And there's a number of people out there that say alcohol is debilitating to the liver and the health of the functioning system and da 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 And so you could say there's an argument to be made if you're from a family that has proclivity to cancer, you shouldn't drink alcohol. I'm choosing to say, well, maybe that's true, but I would enjoy my life less if I'd made that choice. What else about nutrition and lifestyle did well, you change? Yep, um, continued exercising but exercising in maybe in a little bit of a different way um but i'm always looking for different ways to exercise and evolve that added a little bit more cardio to my regimen and some different things and different types of strength training and more yoga the biggest thing that i haven't cracked the code on that i really think that i should and now that we're having this conversation you've really brought it front and center to my mind. And so anybody who's listening to us right now, if you have an intuition to deepen or get down into a meditative practice, do it because I have that intuition. So we're in the same boat and I really haven't done it well. I've stuck my toe into meditation, but I haven't gone into it saying, hey, I know that meditation can be transformative in terms of stress. Well, personally, talk to me, were you stressed? Like looking back, like, was this a stressful time for you? Or? Things were going, you know, really well. And so there wasn't a lot of stress. The diagnosis added stress. Since we're talking about cancer, I must say the president appointed me to the president's cancer panel. Yep. So I'm a member of that panel. Getting to meet the foremost experts in cancer, getting to talk to what's happening in the space, we are looking at real cures in this next decade. I truly believe that by 2030, cancer will be like polio. Now that doesn't mean that we should be less vigilant. It is horrific and it's horrible and people are, are dying every day. And you can do things to help protect yourself from it. Right. From a spirituality perspective, from a nutrition perspective, from an education well, perspective. Talk to me about the nutrition perspective. What have you learned? You can never overdo fruits and vegetables, and just really feeding, you know, polyphenols. I joke about polyphenols. What are your favorite polyphenols? Listen, <laughs> if I could stuff my face in blueberries every day, I would do that. What do you stay away from now? Sugar is the number one thing I attempt to stay away from. More recently, I've been moving towards attempting to marry really smart lean proteins, low mercury fish, yeah. Um, so you still eat meat? You still still eat meat? Yeah. Still eat meat, but moderate amounts. Right. Not a whole lot. I used to eat a lot of chicken because I believe the chicken hype, and I don't. I don't eat hardly any chicken anymore. Really? Yeah. So you eat, you eat fish, fish, little lamb, yep, beef, turkey. For the most bit. part, I stay away from pork and 
I attempt to eat as, as organic or free range or sure. grass fed as possible. I'm getting pulled into learning more about. Still drink coffee. I, well, coffee's we'll key. <laughs> coffee's a polyphenol. Yeah, I know. Okay, so I drink a lot of coffee too much. So coffee's, you know, coffee in and of itself is quite good. Yeah. The problem is, is that most people put sugar, sugar and, and tons of tons of processed stuff yeah. in it, and they're also tending to drink coffee and coffee beans that are toxic, are semi-toxic, yeah. because the oxidation process happens quite quickly once a bean is roasted. Yep. And most coffee that people are consuming, they're consuming beans that were roasted so long before. Yep. Even if you're buying your own beans and grinding them at home, they think, oh, it's the grinding. No, the oxidation and, 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 and all the problematic process starts very early on. Yep. And so that's why I love the business I just bought in Detroit called Roasting Plant. Which is great, and I've been there and I've told you that. Well, thank you. Best coffee in Detroit. It is the best coffee in Detroit. And we roast in, in-house and deliver the beans. So the beans that come to our store, unlike for most, most places, are green. And then we roast yep. in-house and then we grind per yep. order. So one last thing, and then I wanna move on about okay. this. So like you mentioned, you know, I think this is important and I'll, I'll talk personally why I think it's important for me and I think for other people. So, you know, cancer is running your family. You know, father had cancer, you have cancer. You know, in my family, like my father died from heart disease, 47. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother's, my mother's father died heart attack in his early 50s. So in my mm -hmm. mind, so for me, that's something, you know, I always say, and I've right. done tons of tests, but like I'm 42 now and, and every once in a while, mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, whoa, like it's something I, I think about. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, there are certain health issues that, that run in families yep. and they're these ghosts, so to speak. Yes. And so what I try to do is say like, all right, this is a generation that stopped with me. Like I'm fine. But sometimes that's a challenge. It is. I like to have a conversation about, make it conscious rather than saying, oh, this is definitively the generation that stops and that's right. it. And I'm going to will that to be and I'm going to put it out of my head. I say, this could be the generation that stops. So let's try to do all the things that we can do to, 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 to help that given the new knowledge we have or mm -hmm. information that I have. But at the same time, it may not be. And if it's not, am I living my best life today? Right. Am I staying present? Right. And I, if, if, if tomorrow I get another diagnosis, will I feel like, what was I doing the last year? Right. Two years, three. Because it's possible. Right now, I have three candles at my bedside. One candle is for my father. Mm. One candle is for Gene Wilder who is a, a, yeah. a, a, a friend, uh, he's the basically the uncle or the, the essentially the father of my best friend. And um, the other candles for my uncle Frank, who's my father's brother who died of cancer. Yeah. And I had a meeting with somebody who, when I was talking about these people, they asked me questions about men in my life that had passed on that I had. And, uh, they asked me the question, it, was just, it just struck me. I was like, whoa. He said, how come you don't talk about your father that much? You know, he deserves a lot of praise that you don't give him. What's that about? Mm. And I think maybe for a long time, I was trying to, like, say, oh, okay, cancer's not going to get me like him. And almost, I took him out with the whole, in other words, sure, I almost put the, the baby whole with the bath water. Uh, yeah. baby with the bathwater, yeah. exactly. I want to live a life that, that, it, that integrates all. Why is cancer, and this, is, this may sound really crazy, what I'm about to say, but there's a wonderful poet named David White who has a poem where he talks about 
most all of us want to live a life where the sun is rising mm -hmm. and we want all these good things. But when things aren't going well and when the sun is going down, most of us don't want that. Right. But he's, he's saying, well, what kind of month would that look like if the sun just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? Right. There has to be some time when it, when it fades. Sure. And the real challenge of life, and this resonated with me so much, the real challenge of life is can you find a way to celebrate the fading moon part of yourself? Sure. That part of you that says the wrong thing at the wrong time. Right. That part of you that gets rejected. That part of you that made the wrong choice. Can you love it just as much? Not right. convince yourself that you should love it. Not act like it never happened. Not be afraid of that part of yourself, but say, I actually love the part of myself that did that. Right. And not from an outside looking in, but from an integrated place. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is if you're able, that's one of the highest levels of spiritual existence sure. of being able to truly be present and i'll say this and i if the audience hates it i apologize i i'm i'm because I'm, I'm not trying to come off pretentious with what i'm about to do so please i wasn't planning on saying this i haven't said this poem in so long but i'm going to say a poem because it just hit me it's this one it's about this part and i learned it from david white it's not his poem though it's a it's a, it's a woman from france who i'm not sure if she's still alive or she's a poet named Fleur Adcock, and she's incredible. And, she, and I'm, I'm, this isn't exactly word for word, but this is basically the poem, it's called Weathering. And it was about, can you celebrate that part of yourself that's growing older? And it goes, the wind from the snow line catches my face, and it flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity wanting to look young forever to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty and only pretty enough to be seen with men who are willing to be seen with passable women. But now that I'm in love with a place that doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy, happy is how I look and that's all. My hair will grow gray in any case, my waist thicken, and the years work all their usual changes. But if my face is to be weather-beaten as well, it's little enough lost for a year among lakes and fells where to look out over the high mountain pass above makes me indifferent to to mirrors or to what my soul may wear over its new complexion wow so first of all everyone listening you just recited that there was no reading there were no cue cards <laughs> i wasn't playing that was beautiful that. but that final line where she says makes me indifferent to mirrors right or to what my soul may wear over its new complexion wow right how can we get to a place where we're indifferent to cancer? Right. It, that doesn't mean we don't care. It means that we're in, we, are, we are so integrated into all of this and who we are and how we've been living that if cancer comes, come on, baby. Right. I'm bringing, let's go. And if we're going to battle, let's go. Right. I'm not going to just give in to you, but... I'm not going to also act like, oh, if I don't think about you, it'll never come. Right. You know, I want to get to that place where I'm indifferent to mirrors or to what my soul may wear over its new complexion because I don't, want my, I don't know what my new complexion is going to be. Well, I think we all do. And I think that's the challenge of life. Yeah. You know, there's the stuff you can control, the stuff you can't control. Right. The stuff you can control, are you doing everything you can in your power to control that? And then do you have the ability to truly let go? I think that's like the tr the middle path. Like that's the that's that's life. That's the challenge. I think it's. I think it never goes away. Right. And and between this and this, it's very tough. Specifically for people who are driven and Type A and work work their ass off and and, and like set goals. I think that that's this is very hard. I think some of the people that we respect the most are able to live in all of yeah. that. Able to live in all those all those multi-textured ways and and it's not to say that you have to be there all the time mm -hmm. you know i'm in a period of transition right now where i'm struggling with things where i you know it's almost like the, the hubris of youth and the in the comp it's like in certain ways i'm less confident than i used to be mm. you know even though i have so much more experience and knowledge and that's a challenge right because i because it used to be i could that's the decision. That's where I'm going. I know it's the, right. and that whatever comes, you know, it was the, and now I'm like, Ooh, 
am I self-sabotaging? Am I, oh, 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 and you can get lost in the, in the headspace right. of too much experience. Specifically in acting too. And also big year, you turned 50 this year. Oh my God. Which by the way, you look fabulous. I look at you, I'm like, man, if I look like Hill when I'm 50, I'm going to be happy. Oh wow, thank you so much. I, ah, yeah. So how's that changed you? That's, or, or, or not a big deal? I never think of my age, which is maybe bad, you know, because I don't think of myself as 50. Maybe I should, because... People, I don't know. People are quick to remind me that I am. Uh, and they also say that, you know, I'm way behind. You know, I'm not married yet. I'm not, you know, all these things. It's like, what? You know, but, but if I was on, on course with a lot of my friends, I would, I, I would not be married now because most of my friends, they've gotten a divorce. They've been a partner at a law firm. They've gone in and they've Wife number three. And, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, I was blown away recently. There was a billboard up in New York that I loved. Um, the first person to live to 150 is alive right now. Yep. And that is a beautiful idea that what is 50? 50? Right. 50 now is I'm just in the first third, perhaps. Right. Maybe I'm just in the first quarter, or maybe I'm at 95% because of all the things we just talked right. about. I don't know. And there's a beauty about that. So why even give 50 any power right. or any sense of what that means? I, I don't feel like I'm as old as what 50 means to me mentally. Sure. And maybe that's bad. Does right. that just mean I'm just an immature person? For me, 42 versus 32, I don't really feel any different. The only thing I think that kicks my ass more than it used to is flying a lot. Definitely feel flying more, but otherwise feel the same. Well, but so, so you mentioned I have something for you for that. Sure. This what? is what do you have? And 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 this is real because I fly a lot, a lot. And the number one thing you can do, and you're gonna laugh at me, and you're gonna say, "Hill, it's not true. I don't want to do this." Is you have to drink so much water yeah. to the point where you have to request an aisle seat and if you don't get up and pee at least four or five times during the flight and if the people next to you don't think that you're weird because you have to go to the bathroom so much then you haven't had enough water and if you actually do that flying will not impact you whatsoever I promise you oh. now people sitting next to you may think that you're a little odd or that you have a, a bad bladder syndrome, which you may have. I don't want to that's get into okay. your business. I haven't seen your medical diagnosis, so. <laughs> but that's okay too. I promise you the hydration works. A bottle of water of choice is some type of spring water. Got it. So hope I would love if you're somewhere like Nebraska or in Arkansas, get Mountain Valley because sure, it's more I love local, Valley, yeah. but, or, or where, Deer bottles. Park or wherever, yeah. glass bottles are even better. And I, that's what I drink. I, I, at home, I exclusively drink out of glass bottles. Yep. I don't drink out of plastic bottles because I think there's leaching, particularly during the summer when these bottles heat up when they're being sure. delivered, etc. But all of this, you know, we're talking about champagne problems. <laughs> the, spring water's better. Yep. So Fiji, Evian, yep. you know, that's not local, but it is what it is. Local's better yep. and spring water's better. We touched on this earlier, something you're passionate about. Yes. Is, is politics in your future? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. You don't know. But something I, you, you think know, about and you're passionate here's about. The, here's it. the deal. I'm interested in two things. Positive impact. Yes. And legacy. Positive legacy. Um, if I get to a point where I feel like my talents, skills, relationships, abilities can serve the most positive impact and legacy through a political life, mm -hmm. then I'll do that. Right. It depends what the position would be. It depends what the needs are. Yep. Um, the one thing I must say, anybody listening right now, I've been on this, I've been on this bandwagon for a little bit now, you have to consider running for office. Right. Everybody listening should consider running. I don't care if it's for your school board, or your city council, or a judgeship, uh, you know, some places you don't even need to be a lawyer to be a judge, people. Listen to me. Please run. 
because we need new representation in government, yep. particularly local government. Yep. Um, we need new blood. We need new people. I just got a solicitation yesterday. I'm just going to be honest. And maybe this quote will hurt me in the future. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it. And you guys, whoever's listening, can we say when it is? Sure. We're in December. You're listening to this in January, but we're yeah. in December. Tim Kaine's wife sent out a mass email asking for donations for his Senate run. I wanted to throw up. Are you kidding me? We just finished this contentious presidential election where you were the vice president. What about raise money for some young 30-year-old who's running for, say, Tim Kaine, nominate new blood, Nancy Pelosi, get new talent in. It's so frustrating that many people, you know, this, the whole idea of, of party and party politics is about maintaining and holding on to your position and power rather than creating opportunities for new talent. And to have the audacity after a, this run to send an email out to this network of millions of people that, that they have right. to say it's never too early. And that's literally what it said in the email. Right. So you, They're doing it for tax purposes. They want to get it in for tax purposes for the I year. don't yeah. care why yeah. they want to get it in. I, uh, I, Safe to say you're a fan of term limits. Term limits and restriction on spending. Yep. You know, uh, we should completely restrict spending on elections. It would really open up the opportunities for many different people to get involved politically. And then the term limits would, would also give them safe space to say, hey, I'm not doing this to become a lifetime right. politician. It's not a career. Not a career. It's service. So give me some odds. 50-50, 70-30, that we're going to see you in some sort of public office someday. Well, I'll tell you, part of it has to do with could I reasonably get an office where I think that I could have impact without having to sell out to get it. Right. And... Is that possible today? It is. It's possible through a lot of people and small donors. Mm. And it's possible if you get a group of citizens who say, this person works for me, but it's a huge diverse group. Because you've got to remember all the public service positions, all these elected officials, they're really employees of the people. Yeah. But we forget that. And then the we allow special interest groups to have so much control where they shouldn't. And so I would want to represent that new idea. I've been working on a document that talks about where I believe politics should have gone and should go. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if we look around in all spheres of, of life, Technology and innovation has had dramatic impact on the way people go about their business and daily lives and even the jobs they occupy. Yep. In politics, there's been none. There's two areas in particular, three actually, where there's really been very little advance in, in any shape or form. Public schooling, yep. politics, and in mass incarceration, mm -hmm. those three areas. But let's talk about politics because that's what we've been talking about. There's been zero. And so I have this, this sort of conceptual ideas, that, or you can call it an agenda, you can call it a position paper or a white paper that, uh, that's all about where politics needs to go and the reason why so many people are disgusted with politics. Right. Um, it has to do with lack of transparency. It has to do with special interest. It has to do with, with you know, certain people claiming waving a flag of democracy, but actually trying to suppress votes. You know, there's so many different 
different elements to it, um, as well as certain types of taxation elements sure. that I think are very uh, regressive. And, and, and um, so I don't know when I'm going to publish that white paper. I don't know. We'll also do another interview. And we'll have to do another, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. So what are the odds? If the odds are, if everybody who's listening to this <laughs> DMs me on Instagram and says, hey, I'll support you with a dollar. Okay. I'll do it. Okay. Well, closing the loop, at least you're getting some good practice on Homeland. Yes. So talk to me. So you're on Homeland. So we're going to close with Homeland. Yes. Super exciting. Very exciting. So, so talk to me about that. So I signed a non-disclosure agreement, so I can't actually, <laughs> I can't tell you, you anything, tell anything about the storyline, but yep. I can say that I'm playing a political character, okay. and I'm working with a woman named Elizabeth Marvel, who is a spectacular actress, and Claire Danes is fantastic, and the writing, Alex Graves is the executive producer, head writer. Fantastic writing. The show is really good, and it's really well produced, and it's it's on Showtime, and and um, you know, so honored to get get a wonderful role on it this season, and then just being able to read these scripts, so well written and so beautifully done, and and so it couldn't be happier to be on the show. But it's all about politics. Yeah. So it's 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 Set in the my stage for the next that's, that's next fun. phase of your life. It's fun. Yeah. So, so. It's, it's good stuff. Hill Harper, thanks so much for thanks, being with Jason. us. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this really long interview. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I offended anybody. Well, it's all good. A lot to you. Can't, can't do you in 20 minutes. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Hill. Thanks. Thanks.